Wow, did you see that Celtics-Wizards game? Could the players have made better decisions? What is wrong with the Rockets? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have joined me on the show, friend of the breakdown, best friend of the breakdown, Jared Weiss, who is an NBA writer for The Athletic. Jared, thank you. You're welcome. Great to be here again with you, as we are going to be here every week. So uh, we had a, you got pretty excited, I guess, tonight, uh, watching some of these games. Uh, is that fair to say? Sure. Well, I wanted to, I kind of wanted to see the Wizards in there and the team I covered, the Celtics happened to be playing them. And the fourth quarter and overtime of that game was just silly. I mean, it was insane. So I figured we just got to lead the show off because it was the big game that happened last night. I mean, you say it's worthy of uh, perhaps somebody making a video about it. Sure. I mean, if I knew any people that could do film breakdown and had the mental wherewithal to do it, I would say yes. So I'll, I'll see I'll if get, I can find someone on that. I'll get my magnifying glass out and start sleuthing. So. <laughs> well, let's yeah. let's yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about I, it. Well, I mean, the funny thing is it was a game where there was just a lot of great back and forth offense, not a ton of defense. This was a game, you know, so covering the Celtics. I spent the first month and a half, I guess, of the year just watching a team that was playing 2016 offense instead of 2018 offense where, you know, if you're not scoring 120 points, you're not really trying. So this game, I mean, this game really had it. It was really potent late in the game where Kyrie and Wall were just taking it to each other and they were guarding each other for the most point. And it was like a kind of it really felt like a playoff game. It usually does with these two teams because there's so much bad blood over the years and because, you know, the Morai twins are going at it. But, I mean, this was a quintessential example of like a kind of like an Eastern Conference game where it's just like two ISO guys just trying to charge the rim at each other. And it's something that I I mean, I haven't really seen a ton of that in the league so far this year. And that was what made it so fascinating. Right. There's nothing like an old fashioned shootout going back and forth, especially the same position. And, uh, you know, it was it kind of left me speechless watching those uh, watching them do that because, you know, like you said, we haven't seen much of that this year. So um, here's the thing I want to say. I think I've said it before and I'll say it again. And I know I did in one of the videos I did on the Celtics. It's that they're at their best when Kyrie is playing like he is the man, like Michael Jordan. Like he is the guy who's going to take all the shots, create everything and, and put the team on his shoulders. And is it fair to say here's another example of that happening, right? I do think so. And I was resistant to that for a while. I feel like you've been trying to make that point to me for like months now. <laughs> and I've been resistant. But it's maybe at least in this early stage and certainly when it comes to playoff time, it's really proving true. And I think it's I think it's just as simple as that when a star player is going off and you know getting all the buckets late in the game, it just obviously makes things makes things easier because like game execution's the hardest thing, and that's why guys get paid thirty five million dollars. So I think it might just be as simple as that. But we saw in this game that I mean most of the guys were executing, but Kyrie just was able to pull out a few special ones. And I mean the way that they that the Celtics won the game was that Kyrie hit which was a bad shot, a dagger in John Wall's eye with the shot clock, I guess, kind of running down, but just never dribbled, just kind of stared him down. It was kind of like a classic LeBron shot where LeBron will stare a guy down for seven, eight seconds, just waiting until he gets the right angle to pivot out of and then shoots it. And then 
the next possession, he just early in the possession just pulled up from 30 feet and buried it. And I think that's where you really, really separate yourself as a shooter, especially a point guard shooter nowadays, where most guys can come over a screen and hit a 25 foot three. But it's these guys that can hit those 30 footers that just completely shock the defense Mm -hmm. that create this hopelessness that Steph and Dame do so routinely. And, you know, Kemba Walker can do that as well. Kyle Lowry once in a while can pull that off. That's something that Kyrie doesn't do very often. And when and seeing him pull that one out, I think, was a pretty huge sign to him being like, this is my house kind of play, which was funny because he was getting MVP chance while he was playing in the Wizards' house, oh. which I think is really a testament to the way the Wizards fans are, really. Yeah, well, it was funny because I was at the uh, Clippers uh, Heat game. And first of all, there's a lot of Heat fans in Staples. It was crazy. And they were giving Dwayne Wade the MVP chant as he's on his way out of the court after the game. It was kind of crazy. So hearing that. Sounds legit. Yeah, it's weird. So hearing that in a different, you know, uh, uh, arena is always strange. But uh, like the point I was trying to make with you about Kyrie being the man. And listen, it's easy to say, oh, of course, if a guy in your team scores 30 points, like the team's going to win. It's not necessarily true. But right now, if Kyrie scores 26 or more, they're seven and they've won seven of nine. They're seven and two. So. You know, there's something there, but I don't know. It's just, and it, I can't give it to you any other way, but just like the, there's like some sort of visceral uh, reaction I have when I watch him doing that, that seems to just make the team better than they are when he's not. Now, they've won a ton of games when he scored 17 points or less, too. So, but there's just something about it that when he's doing that, it's like they are so tough to beat, like in my mind. Yeah, I mean, that's why the elite teams have elite players, right? I think we're just kind of stating the obvious here, so we shouldn't go too far down the rabbit hole. But, yeah, that's what separates you and makes you actually an elite team. And to the Wizards' credit, I mean, John Wall, you know, Beal had a really good game. Oubre hit some clutch threes. But Wall was getting to the rim every single possession there late. I mean, his his ability to turn the corner showed, one, that he's definitely looking like he's healthy again, which, you know, John Wall, when he's – in shape and healthy at the same time, which doesn't happen a ton. He is definitely an elite point guard at that point, and we really saw that in this game last night. Uh, but what was really frustrating was that at the end of the game, Bradley Beal's coming down. They're down by three. They, they need a three to tie it. And Beal's coming down, takes an early three, misses it with, I guess, like eight seconds left. Long rebound comes to John Wall, who barely saves it from out of bounds. Mm-hmm. They still have like eight seconds left on the clock, they can work some ball screen action, some sort of dribble handoff to you know yeah. get a good shot, especially because uh, Kelly Oubre had been so red hot late in the game too. Like they could have made something happen, but instead Wall just like kind of turns around and puts up a, another like you know twenty eight footer with front rims, and then Boston got the ball back and they were able to end it. So the lack of patience there on that final play was really frustrating. But you know Kyrie took two shots that were not definitely not good shots, and he hit both of them. And, you know, if he missed those shots, he'd probably be making the same complaint. You know, that's what that's what elite players do. But frankly, you know, elite players can also have the wherewithal to be a little bit patient and not just shoot it just because they're open, even if they're on the other side of the Potomac. Well, the, the difference also is that Kyrie is a 39 percent shooter from three and Wall is a 31 and a half percent shooter from three uh, on sort of high volume in a way that uh, John Wall should know better. Uh, than to take that shot for sure. There was plenty of time, and it, it almost like maybe he was caught up in all of this shooting. And I, I, I kind of like you know, you ever do that in pickup where it used to happen to me. I don't play anymore, but it used to happen where I would hit a couple threes, and then everybody would just start trying to jack him up to prove that they could do it too. 
I mean, if I ever hit a three and pickup, I would agree with that. But <laughs> I'm just going to take your word for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, it's just weird because it almost it kind of felt like that was it. What it was, especially in what you said, which is the context of him getting the rim every single time when he wanted to uh, was insane. But again, maybe saying that John Wall made a bad, a bad decision in a crunch time game isn't necessarily the most unusual <laughs> statement either, I think. Right. That's true. But you know what's seared into my mind is one of the best games I've ever seen in person was game six of the East semis two years ago where John Wall buried a game winning three at the buzzer from the right elbow uh, in Washington. And that game was so incredible. And he took a shot. I remember when he took a shot, I went, God damn it, John, as it was in the air, which I did again tonight because you, know, you <laughs> want to see him make the right call. But, you know, he hit it that night. He missed it this night. That's how it goes in the NBA. And it's also how it goes in most men's lives where they struggle to look and feel good as they move into their 30s. Lord knows it's how I feel. You can look and feel your best right now by using Hims, a new wellness brand for men. The equivalent of long two-point shots is letting your hair thin out and go bald. So get proactive and avoid the hair loss that 66% of men start to suffer by age 35. The solution? Visit 4hims.com where you can take care of hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness. My hair looks thick, the skin under my eyes smooth, and the permanent smile on my wife's face are all thanks to HIMS. They connect you with real doctors and medical grade solutions so you can avoid the waiting room and awkward exams in your underwear. Order now and you'll get a trial month of HIMS for just $5 while supplies last. See website for full details. This would cost hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. So go to 4hims.com slash Coach Nick. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash Coach Nick. And in case your ears needed help too, it's 4hims.com slash Coach Nick. And speaking of poor decisions, we did have a couple other ones that were certainly worth scrutiny. And one of them was, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do this in the right order, but uh, the Celtics are up by one. This is in the regulation at the end. And uh, first of all, the Wizards are trying to foul. There's only, what, like uh, 13, 14 seconds left, I think. And they're, they're, like, grabbing Kyrie, and they don't give him the call, right, like at half court. And so but instead of pulling it out and, like, taking another five or six seconds off the clock, maybe before they really foul, Kyrie just goes to the basket, dishes it, and they get a dunk. That gives them a three-point lead, but it gives uh, Washington. Right? Am I right with that? Is that right? It was three-point lead. Yeah, that was. I think Tatum threw it down. It was. I mean, it's a nice feed, but I, I I assume you're going to say the issue is they didn't run enough time off the clock. Right now, what we know what happened in the next play. In theory, they only needed a couple seconds to do what they needed to do, so it almost wouldn't matter if they took you know even four or five seconds more off. But just as a matter of you know fundamentals and, and decision making, generally when you're up by one. In that situation with no shot clock on, you know, I, I think the point where you'd want to do, I, th- I don't know, I, I would think would be to take as much time off as possible. I agree with that because I mean, I, yeah, you're, go you're not going up by four, you're going up by three, so they could still tie it up. So, but I guess they also felt that they were going to get fouled. But then again, Kyrie had the ball and they hadn't missed a free throw all night and he was red hot. So, yeah, I'm not really sure why Kyrie decided to make that play. But 
you know, I think that's kind of part of it's it's both a positive and a negative for Kyrie is that when he's locked in, he'll oftentimes get a little too mm-hmm. not cocky, but he'll he'll get a little too excited maybe in the moment and he'll they'll go he'll get a little overzealous like sure. he did in that case. Well, and that led to Bradley Beal getting fouled. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So now what's interesting was, uh, it, it, by the way, this would have worked better than if they had taken off the time, because when you're up by three, a lot of times teams want to foul. But you don't, you don't do that if there's more than like 10 seconds in the clock. And there was, I think, 13, right? Was it 13? That's right. So, they, so the uh, Wizards inbound the ball and, and they quickly foul them and so they don't let them get at the game tying three, which, again, that's the right principle, but it's too much time left. I, I, from anybody I would have talked to would have said, yeah, you have to wait until under 10 seconds. So Beal makes the first one and he didn't miss the second one on purpose, right? That's pretty clear to you, right? I, it didn't look like it, but it certainly seemed like he nailed the on-purpose miss off the side rim because right. he was able to go and grab that rebound and then finish right away. And Marcus Smart, surprisingly, who was making so many incredible, typical Marcus Smart plays in that game, somehow didn't get up there and grab the ball in time, even though it kind of went right past him. So surprisingly, he wasn't able to finish that one off. Right. But Beal was able to convert. I mean, that was a fluke play. Like I, I don't think Stevens game plan failed because of that like that's just something that's pretty ridiculous but you know and Stevens had two timeouts so the idea that I think he said after the game was go for the foul expect them to hit both or you get the defensive rebound and box out and then you just kind of work the timeout advantage because they can keep advancing the ball so it does make sense in theory even probably was three seconds more you know basically like a full possession more than most people would have done it I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of shaking my head on that one. But okay, I mean, because I, I don't think you need the timeouts because you want the clock to run because you're up. But uh, but uh, the thing was, so when Beal put it back, and the thing about Marcus Smart, though, even though it kind of whizzed by him, he didn't go where he was supposed to go toward the, to box out the shooter, as yeah. we all know from sixth grade on. And that was problematic. He kind of just floated in, you know, down closer to the block. Uh, so, so again, we wouldn't have had overtime because he just would have done what he's supposed to do and grab the rebound. They would have fouled him whatever. So, but that was, that was kind of uh, fascinating to see when you have these, you know, interesting, uh, chess moves, uh, especially in the regular season when you just, you have, you know, some leeway to, to, to feel around with how things are going to work and what won't work. So I would be surprised if Brad Stevens did did that again and, and fouled with that much time left. I don't, I was, I think he was kind of radical for doing that. I've never seen a coach battle outside of the 10 second line before yeah well it was a, a, another at the very least it was an exciting game and it was worth even getting the overtime because there's even more uh fireworks there so uh great game and uh a big win for the celtics now uh it seems like perhaps they're starting to figure some stuff out and does it relate to the fact that jalen brown uh, isn't starting or playing <laughs> well, it, more the former than the latter, because he I actually have a piece coming out today on The Athletic about how Jalen's kind of refound his ability to attack. And he is he averaged, I think, 21 points a game in his first three uh, games returning from injury. And he's it, it's there's something about getting moved to the bench that seems to cure all the offensive woes for Celtics players right now, because Hayward had the same thing happen to him when he went to the bench a couple weeks ago, and now it's happening for Jalen. I think it's just that they get more freedom and they feel more comfortable to kind of attack and not feel like they're breaking up the offense. So that's working really well for Brown. And I think Brown, Brown, right before he got hurt, he fell on his back and had that bruised tailbone that he was out a couple weeks for. I think he was just starting to find his groove again anyway. Uh, you know, the big thing for him has been, I mean, his shot's been cold, but he's also just missing everything in the paint. 
and he's relying too much on some of his more predictable moves from last year that teams have game planned for. So he kind of went back and he's kind of focusing on kind of slowing it down once he gets into the paint and using physicality to position himself to get mm-hmm. a shot off better. So he's looking a lot better now. And everybody else in the Celtics is looking better. I mean, they seem kind of like the complete team that they were supposed to be when they came into the season. Yeah. And you know, what's funny was that it was one of the big things I suggested in the video I did right before they went on this run was that Jalen Brown probably should come off the bench. So talk uh, up whenever someone argues that I'm always wrong, at least I'm going to make sure I, you know, <laughs> cite that uh, part of my video because I, that was what I said. And I think that he's much better against going against bench units anyway. Well, Brad, thanks for listening to the pod and watching the videos. So good to have you on board. (laughs) Yeah, I I had been saying even before the season started that I thought Hayward was going to spend a lot of time on the bench and that Baines would do some starting. Obviously, I didn't account for Mook having such a great start to the season, but I figured that they would just want to balance out some of these guys early on just to kind of integrate them smoothly. And I figured Hayward would need it just from a phys- you know, just from like a recovery standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I was kind of late to accept that Brown made more sense off of the bench. Really just because I think Brown is a he's a very efficient player in that he doesn't like do much fluff. You know, with him it's just grab and go. It's a shoot or grab and go and try to get all the way into the into the paint or he's going to pull up from the 15, you know, from 15 feet when he, when he gets around that little like pitch post screen, like his game is relatively simple in the half court offense. So I figured he probably should stay in the starting lineup just because he's able to kind of fit quietly in with the rest of the system. But I think it's pretty apparent that they just needed some, but they needed more playmaking. They needed more confident deep shooting and they, they needed more playmaking, putting the Marcuses in there around Kyrie, who's like finally starting to get healthy and is finally looking dominant. I mean, that's they, they kind of have that balance down pat now. And part of what has made them so good recently is how they look in their NBA gear as they come out onto the court. And it's the kind of officially licensed NBA gear you can buy from Fanatics. I've got a coaching polo that instantly makes me a better analyst. And I'm sure wearing their stuff will improve your game, too. I'm wearing one right now, and it's by far the most comfortable shirt I own. And I love the design. Fanatics is the world's largest collection of officially licensed fan gear from all the leagues, teams, and players you love. There's a gigantic sale happening right now over at Fanatics.com, and you can get jerseys, sweatshirts, winter jackets, backpacks, tons of apparel and gear, all branded with your favorite team and or player. And if you buy a jersey of a player that gets traded within 90 days, They'll replace that jersey with another player from that team or your favorite player's jersey on their new team. They've got thousands of products for college and pro hoops fans. Join Fanatics Rewards today and earn fan cash on every purchase. And get free shipping through December 31st by using my link, fanatics.com slash coach Nick. That's fanatics.com slash coach Nick and get free shipping through the end of the year. Well, let's talk about the Rockets because that's an interesting discussion, part of one of a video I'm going to be doing soon uh, about the biggest surprises of the year so far. Uh, and certainly they are their record is a, is a big surprise. I've been digging into some footage, and so I'm kind of curious what your take is right now on what is ailing the Rockets. Well, I'm not going to focus on Chris Ball because I feel like that's getting beaten to death by everyone. The first thing, I guess, is probably just defensively, 
Clint Capella is not dominating nearly as much as he was last year. I think what made them so great, besides that their offense was elite, was that they could also go switching across the board with their defense. And Capella could take shooters on the, you know, he could take one-on-one scores, stuff like that. And right now, guys are, like in that Portland game, which Houston ended up winning, they were targeting switches on Capella so that guys like CJ and Dave could take a one-on-one to get shots off. And that was, I thought, the kind of the key to Portland almost winning that game. And that's something that you expected. I thought Capella would take another step forward with this year. I'm wondering if it's a health thing because it's not like he got dumber all of a sudden. And he certainly seems to be playing pretty hard. So I'm trying to figure out exactly what that is, but I'm guessing it's probably health-related, why he seems a little kind of a step slow guarding on the perimeter. Interesting. Yeah, because what I've noticed was as I dove into the footage and I realized they were really struggling against pick and roll, and what I kept seeing was is guys getting the hoop and sort of laying it up and over and around him. And um, so my eye test was, and I kept seeing it over and over again. So I'm saying there's something up here because, yeah, I remember him. He's blocking like two shots a game, but everything else is just going down. So I went and checked uh, amongst centers from shots inside six feet uh, uh, defending. And, you know, again, all these stats are a little bit uh, subject to interpretation and who knows exactly how they track it. But basically, if you look at the, um, the difference in their normal field goal percentage from inside six feet and then the defended field goal percentage uh, among centers who's played at least 15 games, Games, Capella ranks 46th, which is way down there <laughs> at negative 1.9. So basically what that means is that uh, they're only shooting 1.9% less than they normally would at the rim versus like some of the better centers who are way like they're really holding their those, those shooters down below a lot, a lot farther. So, yeah, like my eye test is telling me exactly what you just said. And certainly that's interesting. Now, here's another interesting stat I noticed was. They were ranked 21st when Melo was playing the first 10 games on defense. Since then, in the games without Melo, it's 15 games, they, their defense is, is plummeted to 27th. Well, that makes sense. I mean, they lost an elite defender in Carmelo Anthony, as we all know. So yeah, that completely makes sense. I mean, MCW's been playing more. Maybe that's what it is. James Ennis has been pretty off lately. That, that is a really strange one. I mean, that's where you can't. I mean, besides Capella, you can't ignore just that Chris Paul is not a tenacious in your shirt defender right now. Yeah. And maybe he's still recovering from the hammy injury last year. Maybe this is a lingering thing and he needs to kind of work himself in throughout the year. I mean, hopefully he'll be able to turn it around. But just, you know, right now, CB3 is the shell of himself. And they're, you know, they're a team, they're a kind of a duopoly team when it comes to their talents. Like they have two elite players and then a bunch of really good role players. And one of those guys is playing like, relatively like crap so yeah they're not going to be very good but what made them so great defensively last year or at least really good defensively was that you had their on their pick and roll def- defense you had cp3 getting up really tight into the ball and then when they weren't switching and they were dropping capella could just kind of swallow it up he could kind of do an aggressive drop so they were base they were like almost blitzing this ball screen and they could trap the ball handler really easily and kind of you know, do their rotations, then rotate back out, kind of reset the defense. And that just made them so effective routinely. But we're seeing CP3 can't really jump up into the ball anymore. Um, Capella, when he's trying to pick up the ball handler up on the elbow, they're getting by him easily. It's like he's – it looks like his shoes are tied together or mm-hmm. something like that. So kind of all the stuff that was kind of the core principle that what made their defense effective last year – isn't working at all right now. And obviously Harden isn't going to be like the off ball guy who's coming in to be a playmaker. He's going to be the one basically just waiting to, to run back on offense. Right. 
Now, interestingly enough, if you isolate the 15 games they played without Melo um, in the last 15 games, the Rockets are actually number one in offensive rating. So whatever Chris Paul's issues are, you know, on the defensive end, they're certainly not really affecting the team. And not only are they are they number one, they're they're number one by three net points um, over to the second place team, which is really interesting to me. Now that said, I just haven't had the wrong setting on before I said that. When you do the last five games, well, guess who's number one in offensive rating? Uh, the Boston Celtics. They are. And <laughs> so but over the last five games, the Rockets are only 17th in offensive rating. So it it must be a wild swing here where the, the those Games 15 to 5 were really good, and now the last five have been really bad. So I think what the, the Rockets have is a case of just, you know, they can't get consistent at all. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's been their huge thing is that they look every single time they play, it looks like they've turned it around, and then it looks like they turned it around again. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, I mean, D'Antoni's been really criticizing them for consistency issues, and I think they had they had some sort of brutal practice lately, apparently, recently, where – they were really hammering home just how inconsistent they were. And, I mean, there was, there was that game against Dallas where Wes Matthews dropped 21 on them where I think they, you know, people thought – or at least they figured that they would win that one. They were up pretty big in the fourth quarter. And then Luca had that incredible comeback. And we're yeah. going to have to squeeze some Luca talk in there. You know, but that, their offense did not respond to Luca hitting them. With, they should have been ready for that because they see James Harden do this to teams all the time. And Luca was basically a James Harden clone in that game. And they just weren't able to respond because I think there's just too much pressure, I think, right now on Harden to be the one carrying everything for them. Sure. And I got into trouble when I was talking about that game because down by three with uh, about 20 seconds to go, the Rockets just pushed the ball up as fast as they could and and, uh, jacked up a really tough three-point shot. Uh, the game ended up being over. They they missed the shot. They got the rebound. They fouled, and they made the free throws, and that was it. Whereas normally you'd want to get a quick two, uh, foul, extend the game, get more possessions that way. And uh, I even had people kind of argue with me on Twitter about it. And it was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you know, you don't. I don't know. No, nobody I know would, would really advocate for like a really quick, you know, tough three in that situation. But here's the other thing about the threes. Obviously, they live by the die by the three. Do you know what they're ranked uh, in three point percentage for the year? The Rockets? Uh, I think they must be climbing by now because they've been shooting well at this point. So I'm not sure. Uh, Tell me. Well, for the season, and we can mix and match a little bit in a little second, but uh, they're 24th and they're probably number one in the temps. Let's see here per game, right? Yeah, by, yeah, they're one number one in the temps. So that's not a really great recipe for disaster, or it is a recipe for disaster. How many games do you want me to look at? The last how many? Uh, I'd probably look at the last 12 or so. All right, last 12 games. The Rockets, oh, look at that. Well, they're still number one in the attempts, and they are 19th in three-point percentage. So that's not going to really? work, right? Huh. I figured uh, it would be higher than that. It seems like they're hitting more, but I guess they are, right? That's five spots up. Right, so. they, and probably in some games they were, in some games they're not. So, again, consistency is an issue. But I just don't think when you're a team that's going to lead the league in the threes like that, you gotta be, you got to be top 10 in percentage, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, that's... This is what you would. Those are the kind of number results you expect from a team that's playing so consistently. I'm not necessarily going to measure. I, I would measure them more on how many shots in the paint that they have, whether or not their drive and kick game is actually working. Because you know, in that in that game against Dallas, uh, Paul and Harden combined for what 58 points. Mm-hmm. So that was you know that was the kind of combination you're looking for from them. But then just like the rest of the team hit. I think was it six threes combined between everybody else out there, you know, and Eric Gordon obviously has had a very up and down season. 
And, you know, I think just frankly, their shooting depth is just not that good anymore. After losing Mambute and Ariza, they end this out there. Tucker, who, you know, is good when he's on, but he's inconsistent. Capella's not a three-point shooter. And then it's Eric Gordon and Gerald Green. Gerald Green is an extremely streaky player as well. So right now they just don't have the shooting depth for the system to really work. And that's probably why they're going to have to, I mean, they're definitely going to hit the buyout market as they always do. I guess the question is whether they can somehow pull off a trade to acquire some sort of shooting help. Right. And what they really need to start looking at, though, is um, you know, are they, do they have really hope of making the playoffs? Right now they're only two games back. Uh, of the eighth spot. So it's not like a crazy amount. But again, everyone is so bunched up here that uh, it, the longer they take, I mean, we're already, we're 26 games in the season. We're, we're not like at halfway yet, but we're getting closer to that than they are within the beginning. And so they have to worry about that. And, and you know, throwing somebody new in there who they might want to play a lot is could, could be disruptive as well. Uh, and I just don't even know, I can't even picture who else would be there because the kind of guy they would like, Cal Corver would have been fun. They didn't get him, um, yep. and I don't know who else. Who else would they – anybody come to mind? JR. Oh, yeah. No, they're talking about <laughs> they're that, gonna, right? That's going to happen. Yeah, that, that, probably. Well, I mean, people say Kyle to uh, to Philly was going to happen, and it didn't happen, so we'll see. But right. uh, I, I assume that one's going to happen. It seems to make sense. I mean, but didn't, didn't they just learn from, from Mello? Like, I don't, I don't know, but uh, – I don't. I don't see that working at all. Yeah, but, but Jr. Jr. can still shoot. Melo can't really provide anything of value at this point, besides, you know, plotting playmaking or not playmaking. You have to pass to playmake. You know, Melo didn't really provide anything. Jr. I think we've seen is still capable of providing what they need from him. I mean, because I think their season is going to be basically trying to match all the shooters up that are currently hot and get them in there. I mean, they're basically just kind of checking the temperature, dipping their toe in the water of all these different pools, you know, saying, are you hot right now? Are you hot right now? And trying to get them in the game. And that's, that's how they, that's how they decided to construct their roster. And I don't think anyone's hundred percent certain why they decided to let Ariza go. Hey, maybe, maybe they end up getting Ariza back somehow. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows? But although it sounds like he's going to the Lakers, so I guess the league's already been this, the bio market has already been decided December 12th somehow. Oh, I yeah. Figured. Have you seen KCP? Uh, I, I had a quick uh, video on Twitter about that. He came off the court and Luke was trying to, you know, instruct him on something. And he was just like, he waved his hand and just kept walking. It was the most disrespectful thing you're going to see short of getting in the guy's face and throwing a towel in it. But um, I Or tortilla I, soup. Or soup, yeah. So, and speaking of JR, so we're we're already um, we're already past that. So, I guess we're going to find out what happens to KCP as well, and a guy who uh, you know should have probably been better than he was too in the, with the Lakers, and just can't figure it out. Well, that was the next thing I was going to bring up because did you see what was on theAthletic.com today? I did a report not. from Shamsirani and Kelly Eco saying that KCP might be the guy heading to Houston, who would be obviously a perfect fit for trying to solve all their problems if he. Yeah, you know, if he wants to play, obviously. Yeah, no, he would be better if uh, than Jr. So yeah, that's interesting to me. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but that was fantastic stuff to break down. Great show, Jared. As always, really happy to have you here every week. So uh, thank you. You know, we didn't get our Lucas segment in, but I did get to say the word Luca, so I feel like it was a successful podcast anyway. Yes, Luca, Luca. Well, yeah, uh, and and again, we'll just both say that we were both. I, I guess if you say you were on on his wagon train since age fifteen, then then you win. But I was there. <laughs> I was there earlier, early enough. But uh, yes, uh, certainly, uh, I, I did some videos on him. He's just a, a, an amazing talent and really fun to watch. 
I, I'll, n- I'll never get over him not going first. I mean, maybe when DeAndre Eden gets into the Hall of Fame, but we'll see. I don't think I'm ever going to get over that right. one. Well, you know what? Let's The topic we'll talk about next week will be why these teams keep drafting these like traditionally traditional big center kind of guys rather than the 3 and D that you'd want. Now, Luka isn't necessarily in that category either, but uh, the idea that you're not going to draft a guy who's like 6'8 and who can play defense, who can knock down threes, that's the guy you should be drafting at the top of the, uh, the order. Yeah, I think we, we got I have a lot of thoughts on this just from a philosophical perspective and a modern team building perspective. But, yeah, we'll save it for next week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Jared. And thank you guys also out there for uh, joining us for this great podcast. And don't forget, sports fans at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jared? I don't think I'm going to answer that one.